This episode of Mass Holes is brought to you by Friendly City Books, Columbus, Mississippi's independent bookstore. Learn more at FriendlyCityBooks.com. Hello and welcome to Mass Holes, the Friendly City Books podcast where we talk all things Sarah J. Mass. I am your host, Caroline, and with me today is Ethan. Hey. How you doing? Doing all right. So, Ethan, before we dive straight into this gigantic book, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a Mass Hole? Well, a little bit about me. I uh, just decided to start reading fantasy, really Within the last couple of years, I think uh, uh, I really I started with science fiction mm-hmm. around that time. I uh, went to uh, Dune first, right? Kind of got me falling in love with reading again. And uh, I didn't really even read uh, Lord of the Rings until this year. So I was reading uh, Lord of the Rings along with Akatar. Uh, one of my good friends suggested I pick it up. And uh, I knew it was kind of a little outside of my realm. I'm not too into reading romance mm-hmm. um but i mean obviously i love fantasy so i was like yeah i'll give it a shot and uh got through the first book i was like this is really good um my friend suggested hey i love the second book so i just kept going and uh yeah now i'm here and finished i don't know if i should say this but i did technically finish the series <laughs> That so. is allowed. You're allowed. I'm not. <laughs> right, so, right. yeah, I I have to remain completely in the dark. But, yeah, so far it seems like everyone else I've talked to has been, like, light years ahead of me, which is kind of helpful sometimes because yeah, yeah. I think there's so many times in this book where it's like, I don't know why something is the way they that it's supposed to be or that it yeah. is. And they're like, well, just stay tuned. Yeah, You'll figure just, it just, out. Yeah. Just stay with it. Yeah. Give it another book. Um but yeah, it's so funny that you say that, though, because I feel like you are such a genre room person. Like when I think of you, I think of you like in the genre room, picking out books like in that world. Yeah. So it's yep, interesting that's <laughs> that that's like a new thing for you. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, I'm super excited to have you talk about this one with me. So today we're talking about A Court of Wings and Ruin, a.k.a. Aka War. Aka War, yeah. Um, so this book is gigantic. It's 700 pages. I have done nothing this weekend except for read Akawar. So I feel like my head is swimming in this book. But uh, my first thought and my first question is, do you think that the abbreviation Akawar was intentional on Sarah J. Mass's part? So I would say it would be intentional if the words itself didn't make so much sense. With the way that this book is, I think Wings and Ruin makes perfect sense. So I would like to think of it as unintentionally or Unintentionally on purpose, I guess. Something along those lines. A happy coincidence. Yeah, happy coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. I like to think that, you know, by the time this third book was coming out, that Akatar had already been a thing for a little while. Yeah. And that she knew people were calling it Akatar. And she was like, oh, well... You know, what are the options for naming this book? And then she right. saw that what'll, one what'll was, work. yeah, w- saw that one could spell war and was like, well, this is, is it is my war book. So, yeah. you know, might as well. But so it's interesting to me, though, because this is the book in the series that I've had the l- most people say is their least favorite. Oh, same. Really? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, my, my, the friend that suggested I read the series. Uh-huh. Loved the second book. Favorite book of the series. Can't stand the third book. For really? For reason. But yeah. I, I, I love it. Oh, yeah. Like, Same. I think this is a great book. I think that if you are reading these books for the romance, that this is a book that's disappointing. Yes. Because you're coming off this high from Mist and Fury. Yeah, quite, and then, quite the high. I'll yeah, give them that. Yeah. And you're like, wait, where did it go? Right. But I feel like it's also, this is a book where it's like, all right, Farah and Reese are in like the real world stage of their relationship yes. now. Like the honeymoon is over. They're like living with each other and they've got bigger fish to fry. Right. But I think also for the romance readers, there are like these kind of new budding romances in this book. Like you've got Amron and Varian, you've got Nesta and Cassian, and then you've got like maybe Elaine and Asriel. Mm. Maybe. And, you know, I, I feel like it's fun to see these kind of new, new will they won't they's kind of blossom yeah. instead of kind of just dealing with the same couple over and over and right, over it's again. It's something to think about while the wars are happening. Right. Yeah. There, and there is a lot of war in this book. Yes. So I, I would understand why somebody might struggle with this one if they aren't a big fantasy reader or they're not used to books that have like tons of battles. Yeah. I'm not a big battle person. Really? The, it, that was probably the hardest part of this book for me where I was just like, oh my gosh, I get it. You got, you got swords, you got knives. We're all battling. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But I think that also for me, this book was really great because you got so deep into the world. This is this is the book for me where I was like, I'm learning so much about all the different courts oh, yes. and I'm having so much fun. Yeah. Like the world building is awesome. So that was really special. Uh, and we'll kind of we'll get to the courts. Yes. Um, but also for me, there was like suddenly all of this queer representation in this book. Yeah, right. Where it's like, oh, my gosh, more comes out to Feyre. We have two high lords that are queer. And I just... It was funny because I was reading the first books and I, the first two books and I was like, where are the gay fairies? Right. I'm sorry. Where are they? And right. They should be there. Where are they? Right. And finally, and also I will say my biggest pet peeve in this entire series is the just consistent use of male and female. Just yeah. the male said and the female did. And I'm like, stop it, Sarah. Like, yeah. you gotta stop. I, I, I only started to realize like, exactly why she's doing it is like oh well yeah they're not human so i guess yeah male and female is the best but i get it yeah it still kind of is just like girl yeah stop but this helps make up for it a little bit and i can't wait to see where that goes in future books too oh yeah uh so that was that was very exciting and on top of that in this book we have several kind of uh, less liked characters or disappointing characters who get these kind of not maybe not even necessarily full redemption arcs, but mm. redemption moments um, yeah. like Tamlin, Lucian and uh, Feyre's father. All of them have these kind of good moments in this book where you're like, mm -hmm. oh, well, that wasn't so bad. You know, they might still have their own issues, but, you know, we, we get these moments with yeah. them. So. This book is, as I said, gigantic. So I think we should break it down section by section instead of plot by plot line because yeah, we'll be gotta, here all night. Gotta do it that way. Yes. Yeah, so we start out the book. What else is new in the Spring Court? In the first book, obviously the Spring Court was a bit of a slog. Right. The second book starting in the Spring Court was painful. 
But this time, starting in the spring court, I actually had a really good time. Oh, yeah. Same. It was, you know, Farah wasn't this just like adrift person being left in the dark, not having any new information. She was like a spy saboteur yeah, coming with, in. She was there with a purpose. And I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And like a real vendetta, which was really fun to see her kind of like tear Tailman's court apart. Oh, I, I loved that. It was really great. And I also thought it was really nice to see her rebuild her friendship with Lucien. Yeah. Which, I mean, I loved Lucien in the first book. I was so disappointed in him in the second. Yeah. But it was good to see him back in a much better light this time around. Um, and in this book... We learn that Lucian's eye can see through glamours. Mm-hmm. So my question is, do we think that he could see through the glamour on Farah's high lady tattoo? Did he know that that was there the whole time? I mean, I kind of like to think so because I know there's kind of a lot of moments while she was in the spring court where she kind of got like a side eye from him a little bit or like he was mm-hmm. kind of apprehensive about her even being there in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I like to think that he could see it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the Lucian apologist in me is like, oh, yeah, he must have known. Like, he's yeah. so it would make him so much cooler to right. know that he knew this and was like keeping it under wraps. So I like to think that he might have. But also, I think that learning that his eye was made in the Dawn Court is a great nod to the future of this book and yes. where we go with it, yeah. where we get to learn about these other courts. And I just, that was a super cool moment for me where I was like, oh, maybe Lucian's like been in the know this whole entire time. <laughs> but on a not as good note, Ianthe is also there. Uh, the priestess yeah. of Problematic. Um, yep. She brings this delegation from Highburn. It's these two twins, they're royals and Jurian. Yep. And they're coming to the spring court to study the wall and find like its weak points Mm -hmm. so that they can use the cauldron to break it down through these weak points. So, I mean, they're awful as expected. Then they go out on this expedition. Feyre goes with them. Lucien goes with them. um, And Tamlin goes with them. And Feyre's whole thing is a reconnaissance program. So she's like, I got to get the information. What are their intentions? And once she figures that out, she's like, all right, I'm I'm getting out of here. Right. And on her way to flee, she finds Ianthe basically trying to assault Lucian in the woods. And she, of course, is just like, no, this is not going to ride. And so she uses her batty mind powers, basically, to make Ianthe smash her hand up with a rock, like just brutalize. Crazy. Loved I it. Loved. Yeah, Literally, loved I was it. just like, yes, <laughs> destroy her. But so she mutilates Ianthe. She just mind destroys her and is like, everywhere you go, you're going to watch behind your shoulder and know that something is coming for you. Like, you'll never yeah. sleep again, basically. Yeah, I mean, the mental aspect of that, too. I mean, let alone the hand. That's yes. insane. It was so good yeah but then as they're like having this vengeful moment the hibern twins show up and they're like oh did you think you were running because we knew you were gonna run and so they blow feybane on her yeah like uh the dust and wasn't that in the moment where it was like in the food that they were eating also yes that's what it was okay so yeah they had like fed her a feybane apple yeah that's what it was thank you and Feybane shows up a lot in this book. Yes. Which was an interesting kind of plot device, I think, to make Feyre kind of not be this all-powerful, right. unstoppable kind of t- force. Tone her down just a tiny bit. Yeah, it's like her kryptonite. Because basically, Feybane takes her powers away from her. Yeah. So 
they are going to fight her in the woods. They're going to like take her to Highburn, kill her. I'm, I don't really. There was something. I don't, I, don't, I don't even know that they knew for sure what they needed. <laughs> they just know that they needed to stop her. They were like, we just want to brawl. Yeah. Um, and so even without her powers, Feyre is able to battle them. And like the fairy assassin that she is, she kills them both. Sure does. And Lucian's like, holy crap. Uh, <laughs> And so Farah runs for the night court, but Lucian's like, I'm coming with you because he knows that Elaine, who is his mate, is at the night court and he wants to wants to meet her, wants to see her. So he goes with her. But because they have the Feybane in them, they can't use their powers. So they have to flee on foot. They have to go through the fall court. Yeah. Which we all know, of course, Lucian is originally from the fall court. The fall court is horrible. And so he fled the fall court. A long, long time ago. So he, the whole time, is like, we cannot be detected. We have to, like, keep a really low mm-hmm. profile. And right as they're about to, like, escape the the fall court, his brothers show up. And they're like, oh, you, you thought you were going to come by and, like, not say hi? Yeah. And so they, like, have this kind of fight. They flee. They go into the, the winter court, and the winter court lands, and they're like, oh, they wouldn't possibly follow us here. They do. Yep. Okay. <laughs> and so... They're like closing in on them. They're like, oh my gosh, like this is the end. And then Cassian and Azriel show up to save the day, which thank goodness. So they rescue them. They take them to Valaris and immediately Feyre and Reese are reunited and Lucian kind of meets everybody and very quickly realizes the Night Court is not this horrible place that I've always been told. Right. He meets Amran and is like, I was literally told boogeyman stories about this yeah, woman. Like, you haunted my dreams. Right. And yeah. he's like, and you're like, nice? What's <laughs> happening? Um, so that was really cool. But so Feyre learns that her sisters are living in the House of Wind above Valaris and that they are really, really struggling with the transition to High Fae. Yeah. It's not going well for either one of them, but most of all, Elaine. Elaine is like despondent. She will not eat. She will not leave her bed. She is just grieving this engagement to her mortal fiance that can never happen now. It's it's really kind of turned her into a shell of a person, which, you know, we we see a little bit with Feyre yeah. in the second book when she's kind of transitioning and isn't getting assistance in the spring court and is struggling to kind of grapple with who she is now. So the game plan, essentially, they're like, all right, so you're back. Welcome back. Let's figure out what we're going to do about Highburn. So Reese says that he's going to plan a meeting for the High Lords to discuss an alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to try to get everybody to meet together, which we learned in the second book is very difficult with the mortal queens in that meeting. Yes. So mm-hmm. in the meantime, Feyre is training with Cassian, begins flying lessons with Azriel, And Azriel. this is a really sweet moment, I think, because we don't get a ton from Azriel in the, in the second yeah. book. But this, I feel like we're kind of getting a window into who he is. He didn't learn how to fly when he was really, really young, like at all the other Illyrians. Yeah. So he understands how difficult it's going to be for Feyre to learn how to fly. Yeah, I think uh, that little like fable that he gives uh, to mm-hmm. her. Uh, I think that not only does he say that, you know, for her, obviously, you know, learning how to fly. Uh, I, I like to think that he takes that with him as like a reminder that you know I come from a different background. I come from you know I struggled growing up, didn't learn how to fly until way later. Yet I'm still here. I'm still doing this. Um, and yeah, I think that uh, 
is just encapsulated in that, you know, smallest person doing the mightiest thing, right? Yeah. They just so happen to be able to, you know, fly through all the debris, all the craziness, and um, ended up saving what is Miriam's life, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Remind me of the story again. Yeah. So in that, right, they uh, think what this was like uh, in the big battle or the big war 500 years ago, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, that established the wall. So kind of all along this, uh, and I'm probably going to butcher the name on this, but the uh, Nafel, mm-hmm. right? Sounds right to me. Yeah, yeah, good, good <laughs> enough. So their wings were, you know, too small, right? So uh, wasn't deemed useful, and especially with the Illyrians, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of a big deal. You know, they don't let women into their units. They don't think you're useful. You're not worth our time. Mm-hmm. And uh, as this battle was raging on, you know, started to look, you know, not so great. And... Lo and behold, the only person that was able to sort of save the day, save the hero of this story, uh, Miriam, was indeed Nafel because, you know, their wings were small enough. They could dodge the debris. They could get in, get out and save our Miriam. And that was like a nice little gesture towards Farah to be like, hey, just because you're starting at a disadvantage, you're you know smaller, you know, whatever, doesn't matter. You can still be useful no matter what anybody tells you or what you think about yourself. Probably more importantly, what you think about yourself. Yeah. You can still do something. For sure. And I always, I love the point in a fantasy series where you're so deep and the world is so established that you can get lore. Like oh, you just, 100%. let's go tell this story that like they probably tell their children growing yeah. up, you I know, mean, it, believe it, in yourself. Yeah, it felt no different than like us hearing a fable. Yeah. Know, growing up. It was, it was a really, really special moment. Yeah. I think it was probably one of my favorite moments in this book was hearing that story and being yeah. like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Just like establishing that lore, like you said. Yeah, for sure. The best. Totally. So while all of this is going on, Nesta is also trying to kind of figure out what her powers are. They're all a little afraid of her. The idea is that like she took something from the cauldron. And as we go into this book, it kind of is more and more the idea that like she stole death itself. Mm -hmm. And Amran is like the only one that is like, all right, listen, I'll tackle this. I can train her. I can work with her. Yeah. the, The, you know, the scariest of them all. She's got Nesta. And their their relationship is fun, too, because it's just these very, like, cagey kind of, like, who's going to blink first. Right. Um, so that's very, very fun. And then Farah also, at one point, she goes to the bone carver again. And he says, like, okay, I'm going to, I'll fight with you guys, but you have to go get the Orberus. O- Orberus? That's kind of how I've always said it. Yeah. So it's enough. basically a mirror where the legend is that anyone who looks at it goes mad. Yeah. So she's like, mm, are, you, are you sure you don't want anything else? Because I could get you <laughs> like something really else. Anything besides that? Yeah. And he's like, no, no, that'll do. But the thing that I think is the most important about that visit is this is when Faber realizes that the boy form that the bone carver takes mm-hmm. when she sees him is her future child with Reese. Yeah. And so that is, of course, kind of a uh, a big thing for her, but also a big thing with Reese. She shares the image with him, yeah. and it's very important to them. And I think it's it's one of those moments of hope in a war book where it's like, we might not get this far, right? but we can hope that we do. This is on the other side of all of this. So one day, Nesta and Farah are in the library in Valaris, and they're ambushed by the King of Hybern's ravens. Yes. So these are two fairy like warriors, sentinels of his, who have come to kidnap them and bring them back to the king. Because 
the word on the street is that the cauldron isn't working mm-hmm. because Nesta took too much from the cauldron. And so the king wants Nesta back so that he can put that power back in the cauldron and make it work. So they come to kidnap them. They're again, Fabian is used. So Feyre can't use her powers. She's running them deeper and deeper and deeper into this library. And at the bottom of this library in this pit is this terrible monster and nobody really knows what it is but one time Reese dared Cassian to fly down and Cassian came back like white as a sheet and we'll never talk (laughs) about what he saw so we know it's bad so Farah gets down to the bottom and meets the monster and its name is Braxius yeah and she makes a deal with Braxius that if it kills the ravens for her that she promises to send people down there to talk to Braxis Mm -hmm. about what life is like. And that actually really made me sad. Yeah. Right. Like I was like, monsters can get lonely too. Like it was, it was kind of tragic. And I just, I don't know. I was like, Oh, <laughs> team Braxis, you know? Yeah. So um, maybe not so bad after all. I mean, yeah. Sure. The most terrifying thing you've ever seen in your life, but he has feelings. Right. So. And then also on top of all of that, like it rips these Raven fairies to shred so badly that like, it's like, close your eyes. Yeah, don't like see the horrors. Left. Yeah. Yeah. Like you will never forget <laughs> the horrors that I have unleashed on these fairies. But the big thing about this is that Elaine has been kind of babbling around, like just saying nonsense. And they mm-hmm. think that something's like genuinely maybe wrong with her. But the day before she had said, I see two ravens coming to, to Valaris. Like yeah. one is dark, one is light. Like these ravens are coming. She tries to warn them and they're all like, oh, sorry, you're not well. Yeah. And this is when they realize like, oh my gosh, like Elaine right. is a seer. Yeah, they start connecting the dots a little bit there. Yeah. Like she, this is her power, yeah. which I think was really cool as a moment of like, okay, Elaine is like, a real force to be reckoned right. with. She doesn't just tend to her gardens. Like, you know, she's got something to her. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what, for me, Elaine has always been kind of like the one on the side, the like kind of the yeah. doe who's kind of helpless. And I, I just like to see Elaine kind of have a little bit of like a little bit of, you know, spike, little, little a little, there, yeah, yeah, a little spice. So all of that is happening and suddenly, Amron receives word from Varian, who, if we remember, is the prince of the Summer Court, mm-hmm. that the Summer Court is under attack from Highburn. They rush to Adriata to help fight off the king's forces, and they're the only court to show up and to yeah. fight. And in this battle, Reese is hunting down the king, trying to find him. He does find him goes to attack him and realizes that he's just an illusion. And basically this whole battle seems kind of like a stress test. Yeah. Kind of see what they're up against is kind of the way that I took it. Yeah. Testing the water a little bit. Right. Because it wasn't really like we're trying to get this secret thing or anything. It's just kind of like, how how are you going to respond? Let's see what they've got. Right. Totally. But during the attack, Farah and Moore work together to basically save all of the civilians yeah. in the city from these like horrible invaders who are doing terrible things to people. And so they work very, very hard to keep people safe. And the people acknowledge that you have done a good job here, like you've done good work. But after the battle, Tarkin is still furious at them because of their betrayal. He's not over the fact that they stole the Book of Breathings from him. And he rejects their offers to like help further. And he's like, get out. Which was a bummer. I love Tarkin. And I just just want them to be happy and be best friends. But we're not there yet. And that's okay. Tarkin needs time. Yeah. And I mean, as someone that, you know, can be known to hold a grudge from time to time. <laughs> uh, 
I get that, you know, and stole something precious. And maybe not more importantly, but probably on the same level, lied straight to their faces. Yeah. I, I do get it. Yeah, I feel like Tarkin genuinely wanted to be able to be best friends yeah. with them and like wanted to have that relationship. And when they turned on him, it was like an emotional, like it was straight to the yeah. heart. Yeah, no, it, I, mean, I remember reading that and it, it hurt. I yeah. Was like, I really wanted this to happen. Like, I feel sorry for him. I know. <laughs> I am team Summer Court. I love them so much. Oh, and yeah. so, yeah, I'm just like, just just send each other a, a I'm sorry, like yeah. a little text. Send uh, edible arrangement or whatever <laughs> the fairy equivalent of that is. Absolutely. But yeah, it was nice to get back to the Summer Court, even for just a little bit, even if Probably not for the reasons that they would like for us to be in the summer court. Yeah. But nonetheless, it was, a, it was a fun opportunity to revisit. But then after we go to the summer court, we go to the dawn court. And this is when we have the meeting of the high lords, which is far and away my favorite part of this book. Oh, easily saying. Yeah. It's, Loved it. So this is where I feel like we finally get to see every single one of these courts. I mean, I know that they all had representation under the mountain, but they aren't themselves yeah, under the they, mountain. They feel more flushed out here. Yeah. They're like actually able to be three-dimensional characters right. and not shells of themselves. And it was just, oh my gosh, I could have lived in this meeting for all oh, 700 pages oh, of this book. I was so in love. I never wanted it to end. So the first person we meet is Thiessen. He's the High Lord of the Dawn Court. Mm -hmm. He's who Feyre gets her healing powers yes. from. He's very friendly and very welcoming to the Night Court. And oh my gosh, the Dawn Court is so cool. Like, right. A, you've got healing powers, but also they're known as like tinkerers and inventors. And like, I just, I love, like, yeah. did you ever read the Grishaverse, like Shadow and Bone and any of those? I never did. Okay. Actually. Because in that one, there are, so it's kind of elemental magic. And one of the elements that you can be is a material neck, which is where mm. you're like an inventor. You can work with metal or you can do like puzzles and all these yeah. sorts of things. And I've always thought that that is like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and so in my mind, the Dawn Court is like the material necks where right. I'm just like, this is awesome. On top of that, then we also meet Helion. I always pronounce it Helion. Helion. Helion but okay. Yeah. So we meet Helion. He is the High Lord of the Day Court. This is like, for me, like the hot goss oh, of the whole book right series. Yeah. I was dying over this. So we discover that he is most likely Lucian's true birth father. Mm -hmm. He had an affair with the Lady of the Autumn Court around the time that Lucian was born. And to me, this is almost like... Feyre's fan theory Yo, like it's oh, 100%. like easter egg yeah. level i was just like please this is so yeah. perfect and, and one one aspect of it that like i really enjoyed was the fact that everyone was like but he still has powers from the fall court mm -hmm. and then they're like well he got it from his mom not from his dad <laughs> and i was like oh so that kind of implies that you know baron is not this you know big strong whatever he's not able to pass down his powers like mm -hmm. it's all in the mother so yeah, I, I did kind of like that little like tidbit from it, too. Yeah, definitely. The idea that like a mother can bestow a yeah. gift on a child. And so many of these courts are so so like patriarchal. Yeah, yeah. like to the point where I'm like, this is some chauvinist garbage. Yeah. But like, you know, it's nice to see this, especially in the autumn court, which is notoriously one of the worst courts exactly. to see this like kind of underhanded, insidious, like 
betrayal, but also Lucian is kind of the best thing coming out of the autumn court. Yeah. And his mom showed Pharaoh so much kindness under the mountain and really was bold and brave to show that kindness Mm -hmm. to her. And so I like the idea that these two are, they're not only like separating themselves from this court, but they're also like helping to undermine this court a little bit. And also a really interesting point that they bring up in this book is that Helion doesn't have any heirs. So in theory, if this came out, Lucian would be the heir Mm -hmm. to the day court, which makes it a little more interesting. Holy moly. That's a big upgrade (laughs) from seventh son of a court you don't like. So I, I love a good goss. So that was really, really thrilling for me. then we have Callius and Vivian from the winter court. Mm -hmm. Vivian is one of Moore's very best friends. And we learned that she led the winter court while Callius was trapped under the mountain. And if we remember the winter court is also one of the courts that tried to like usurp Aramantha and rebel secret plot. Yeah. And so in my mind, Vivian was like a main person in that. Like, again, this is a court that to me, I'm hearing like egalitarian. Yeah. The lady of the court is doing all of this in this time of, she's like the Abigail Adams yeah. of the winter court. Like, you know, the whole place is burning down and she's saving all the artwork. Right, like, don't she, worry, I'll do my best. Right. She's holding it together. She is being the like strength for her people, yeah. which I think was so incredible. And I love to see more in this role of like having friends outside of the night court. She right. has this like, whole life. Yeah. She, she really opened up in that. Yeah. In a moment, too, when they met up again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed that. And I also really enjoyed, you know, kind of the egalitarian point of that is the kind of the relationship between Callius and Vivian is they seemed a little more on par. Like it didn't seem like, you know, a, you know, king and a queen. Queen knows her role. Like she knows where to stay. But, you know, kind of like jabs at one another, like here and there. Yeah. It felt a little more like of a natural relationship the way it should be. Yeah. At one point, she even like kind of like, I don't know if she like directly like calls him out, but she something happens and she like side eyes him in front yeah. of everybody and is like, get your act together. Yeah. Which I was like, good for you. Like, I, I love this. Plus just the little things that we learned about the winter court were super fun too. So that was a real gem. And then you have uh, the fall court, which ugh, whatever, Um, Baron, his wife and his terrible sons, they all show up before this meeting though. uh, Reese and Feyre have a meeting with Eris, who is the first son, the heir to the throne. And, he makes a deal with them saying the fall court will support your efforts against Highburn if you support my claim to the throne. And this is a deal they make, even though Moore had previously been engaged to Eris and had a horrific backstory with yeah. him. So Moore kind of looked at this like it was a bit of a betrayal and oh, yeah. was very hurt yeah, by Reese. I mean, rightfully so, as far as I'm concerned. I think that it would have been nice to get a little consideration whether or not that changed the outcome. Right. You know. Yeah. And I mean, we do get some interesting tidbits from Eris in this conversation that maybe suggest he isn't as horrible as some people yeah, in his like court. Maybe a little something there that's yeah, like he, not he the worst. suggests that he knowingly tried to get more out of their betrothal because he knew she didn't want to be a part of it. But then obviously there were horrific consequences right. for that. And he also kind of hints that he helped Lucian escape the fall court as well. Yeah. So who knows? You can't take these people at their word, but 
maybe he isn't as horrible yeah. as we think he is. Then, of course, Tarkin and Varian and Cressida show up from the Summer Court. And this is when Tarkin finally kind of recognizes the Night Court's efforts to help the Summer Court mm -hmm. in the battle. And he revokes the blood rubies that he sent in their names. Which I was like, friendship! Yeah, what, what so, we wanted all along finally it, happened. Exactly. I love the line, though, that was like, good luck getting the blood ruby from Amran, though, because yeah, she's so she, attached yeah, to it. Yeah, she just likes it too much. Baller. So that was, it made me happy that they were there. But then last but not, well, last but pretty much least, yeah. woof, um, Tamlin shows up. And Tamlin is like on next level, just on a warpath yeah. at this at this meeting. He is trying to sabotage every effort that Reese and Farah are attempting, these olive branches that they're putting out. He's undermining each and every one of them. Character assassinations left and right. I mean, it is it was genuinely like difficult to read. Oh yeah. How brutal it was. Yeah. He I mean oof. I mean, and at this point, too, you're like, is Tamlin in with Highburn, though? Because it seems like he was, but now he's claiming that he wasn't and mm -hmm. that that was a covert op and that Feyre's undermining of his court allowed for Highburn to, like, take more control. And so it's, you know, I mean, it's Tamlin. He he's never wrong. He, yeah. you know, how much can you really trust him? Right. Yeah. And also, like, how much can he really look at this objectively and be like, maybe I was wrong about something. Right. So, uh, yeah, Tamlin is very nasty in this entire meeting. It's it's very, very ugly. But shockingly, Baron is the worst of them all in this meeting. The the fall court is just like, well, we can't be outdone by Tamlin. Let's yeah. be as horrible as humanly possible. And it gets so bad that it descends into this like physical altercation where Feyre goes at him with all of her powers. And this is the moment where all of the high lords see for themselves that Feyre has pieces of all of their magic. And they all have very different reactions. Some of them are like, oh, no, like this changes everything. Others yeah. are like, cool, whatever. Like, oh, who, somebody says like, oh, I thought that was missing. Now I know where it is. <laughs> like, so yeah. like, oh. Um, yeah, like, oh, super casual. Yeah, and Callius is like, oh, have you figured out how to use ice yet? Like, yeah, you know, I, I've, I really like that response. He's like so him. curious yeah. more than anything. So yeah, it, it was really interesting to see all of them like respond to this thing that we've been kind of scared of since book right, two, like which how is- how are they gonna actually react when they see it? Right, exactly. So the Autumn Court storms out of the meeting, but eventually the other lords agree to join in the fight, including Tamlin very kind of like begrudgingly. Yes, very begrudgingly. Yes, but as Reese says, six out of seven ain't bad. Right. So we do pretty well. But before the meeting can end, the world shakes, Nesta gets really ill, and we find out that the king has successfully destroyed the wall between Prithian and the mortal lands. Big moment. <laughs> Very big moment. <laughs> Not a good one. <laughs> we have so many fun things happening at Friendly City Books. Make sure you never miss an event or sale by signing up for our email newsletter at FriendlyCityBooks.com. So this is the point in the book where we basically enter this like battle sequence. Mm -hmm. And it is a lot of battle. And so I don't we don't need to like rehash all of it. But I think that there are two really major things that happen during these battles. One is that during one of the battles, Feyre goes hunting for the Surreal. They have questions that they need answered. Where is Hybern's true army? Like, where is Hybern himself? Where right. is the cauldron itself? And how do we use the Book of Breathings to destroy the cauldron? Things like that. Like, very essential where, like, Amran has been studying this book and she cannot figure it out. Like, it, we're reaching 
a point of no return here. Yeah. And so she asks Elaine to use her seeing powers to figure out where the cereal is. She finds out that she's in the middle near the weaver's cottage. So she goes and almost immediately finds her because the cereal at this point, they're best friends. You don't need yeah. to trap me, girl. They, they go way back. Yeah. yeah. We just, we're they ready just to, to catch up. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have a combo and it's going to be so fun. Like I freaking love the cereal. Yeah, same. So the cereal helps her with the questions that she asks, but in the middle of the conversation, she gets shot with an ash arrow. Mm-hmm. It's a killing blow. And who comes out of the woods, but Ianthe, oh, of course, God, and hybrid sentinels. And they are like, oh, she wouldn't talk to us. Why does she talk to you? Ha, ha, ha. Like very mocking. And the cereal is dying. And as one of my favorite characters, I'm just like. Yeah, that moment was hard to read. Yes. Like, come on. Especially with somebody that's so awful to have that kind of a win. I hate. I always (laughs) hate. I know it's important for books to have these sorts of like, you know, highs and lows. and doesn't make it any easier to read. No. So. The cereal is like, you have to run. You have to get out of here. And she's like, I can't leave you. And the cereal's like, go now. So Feyre runs. Ianthe and the Sentinels follow her, pursue her. And suddenly she realizes, like, I'm really close to the Weaver's Cottage. Yeah. So she sets a trap for them. She sneaks into the Weaver's Cottage. She hides, like, behind the door. And then Ianthe and the Sentinels run in the door. And she sneaks out, closes the door. And locks them in with the Weaver, who, like, eats them for dinner, basically. Oh, yeah. Which oh, we love. Yeah, I was I, like, so great, <laughs> cathartic. It was like an immediate vengeance. Like I was right. like, oh good, I'm still like sad. I, I knew where it was going. I was like, please let this happen. <laughs> yes, perfect. Just what I wanted. Yeah, like I'm I'm sad that the cereal's gone, but I mean I'm really glad that Ianthe finally got what she deserved. Right. So good for her. Good for the Weaver. So Farah returns to the cereal. The cereal. They have a very touching moment where they kind of talk about like basically being friends. Yeah. That was kind of emotional, honestly. Uh, Pharaoh weeps as the cereal dies. And then eventually she's found by Helion who returns her to the night court, the night court's battle camp. Yeah. So very, very sad. I, I was very unhappy with this whole thing, but the second really important thing that happens in the battles is that, Nesta follows the Serial's instructions to find the cauldron and the King of Hybern's location. But in doing so, the cauldron also finds her, mm-hmm. which not good. And this cauldron kind of responds to this by sending this like siren song to their battle camp. And immediately Farah and Nesta hear it and they're like, oh, no, this is not good. But, like, we know better than to trust this. And Asriel pops in and is like, the shadows are quaking. What is going on? And then they're like, has anybody checked on Elaine? And Elaine is gone. Like, this thing has lured her out of the camp in the night and stolen her, basically. Mm -hmm. So they know that Hybern has taken Elaine. And they have to get her back. So Farah and Asriel concoct this, like, really fast plan. Like, we're just going to go. We're going to grab her. We're going to get the heck out of there. So Feyre uses like the last of her magic because she's so exhausted from all these battles. The last little bit that she's got to transform herself into Ianthe. And Asriel flies her over to the camp. She sneaks in. And who does she meet 
but Jurian. Right, naturally. And Jurian almost immediately pegs her. Like, he's like, yeah. I know who you are. And senses Azriel. Like, I mean, it's Somehow. like, yeah, they, he figures out exactly what's going on. But instead of betraying them, decides to help them mm-hmm. and says, I know where Elena is. She's over here. Like, just like, come with me. And it's like, I'm going to go cause a distraction. You guys run for it. So they grab Elaine, but she's in these magic bindings that they can't get free. So they have to like carry her out of the place. They grab her. They run. Asriel's using his shadows to cover them. But they're still discovered. And Hybern sends these Naga hounds after them. These yeah. like basically hellhounds. Yeah. And they're running and like these hounds are closing in on them and they are like, this is the end kind of thing. And suddenly out of nowhere, Tamlin in beast form shows up, fights off the hounds and they're, they're running and running and they're running to this cliff where the end of the wards are. And the only way to get out is to fly. And so Feyre has not been very successful in her flying lessons so far, Yeah. but in this moment she knows like it's now or never. Right. And so she takes off, and Tamlin is holding off these hounds, ensuring that they can escape, which was a shock to me. But um, and then on top of everything, he sends a little spring breeze her way to help right, her to get some get lift. A little push. Yeah. I was like, oh, OK. Like last time we talked, you were being a terrible, yeah. terrible man. So this is quite the change of pace, which made me wonder, like, how much of his meeting attitude was a farce but i actually think that was just tamlin showing like his worst self yeah i I think that was just tamlin being tamlin like he can't help but just kind of be awful sometimes right and maybe he like showed his whole bad self and like got it all out there and realized oh no i'm like alone in this behavior and that like nobody else was condoning it except maybe baron who we don't want right that's not a good person you want to be like oh yeah no you're doing everything right right like if he's on your side you need to reassess your actions and maybe that helped him kind of reflect and be like okay maybe i'm doing the worst right now so regardless tamlin does a good thing we will put one good check mark in his ledger he gets one for now it does not outweigh anything else nothing um you get one gold star sir (laughs) one gold star so at this point we get elaine back and the the forces are exhausted. The allied forces right now we've got the courts of night, day, dawn, winter, summer. They're all like at their yeah. end. They are just and Hybern just keeps coming. So they gather for one last battle and they're like we're just going to give them everything we've got and if this is the end this is the end. Mm-hmm. So as they're preparing for this battle, they are joined by the bone carver because I didn't mention this earlier, but Feyre does go seek out the mirror. Yeah, she finally gets it. And she has to look inside of it in order to claim it. And the Suriel is who encourages her to go get this mirror and says, the only thing that can drive you crazy is what you allow to drive you crazy, essentially. The Suriel said it more eloquently. So she she goes, she looks in the mirror, and she sees this kind of like monster entity. And she realizes this is her true self. Right. And... She says that she weeps over it and that she like screams and cries and rages and tries to reason with it. But then she accepts it. And it's at that point that she's able to take that mirror and she takes it to the bone carver. And he's like, I'm glad you got it. Right. But I don't actually have use for this mirror. I just wanted you to prove to me that you were worthy right. to fight I, for. Kind of 
kind of the same test, uh, if you remember in the second book, right, mm-hmm. where uh, Reese has her go get the ring from the weaver. Yeah. Same sort of test, right? Yeah. We're going to learn something. Before. Yeah. We're going to learn yeah. something about yourself in this. And it's going to be like a growing experience. Yeah. So the bone carver joins them in battle. But then we also have the weaver mm-hmm. who, while the whole serial incident was taking place, we find out that Helion was there making a deal with the yeah. weaver. And Reese has a new tattoo to prove that he has this bargain. Right. And Braxis from the library, they also make a deal with Braxis to help in the battle. And this, again, Braxis is such a tragic <laughs> character. The, the deal is help us in this battle and in exchange, we'll give you like a moonlight. Yeah. Like I, I remember when I got to that, I was like, had to go back and like reread the lines. I was like, wait, like, just a, like a skylight? That's it? Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's kind of sad. the saddest character. <laughs> I'm just like, you need a hug. Yeah. Like, oh, man. So, yeah. So these kind of like entities and, and from the bone carver too, we, we learned that the weaver is essentially a death God Yeah, and that the bone carver is the, this death God's little brother pretty much. And so these are real, real forces to be reckoned right. with. Um, they are nothing to kind of, you know, Oh, whatever. Like these are, these are big deal people that you want on your side. But then in addition to them, Jurian, Tamlin and the fall court, all also show up in this moment and they throw their weight in and say to hell with Highburn. We're all, we're right. all in this together. And so it's this collective force, but even with all of these entities together, Highburn's powers are still too great. He has an armada. He's got all of these forces and they're just being overtaken. And this is when Draken and Miriam's forces appear to save the day. And yep. they're like, why didn't you call? And they're like, we looked for you. Yeah. You're, you know, you had and, this. And uh, yeah. And I like how their reasoning was like, oh, well, I guess we just made everything like too well. Like, yeah. Like we, we, didn't mean, we didn't mean to hide that hard. Like, oh, we didn't realize our glamour was so amazing. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Like, sorry. We're that good. <laughs> we just yeah. thought our friends didn't want to talk to us for 300 years. But yeah. So Draken and Miriam's forces appear along with the sisters' father. So this is mm. Mr. Archeron, and he comes in on his little armada, uh, basically, that he has rallied these mortal forces to fight in this battle. And his boats are the Pharaoh, the Elaine, and yeah. leading the way is the, the fearless Nesta. Yep. And I mean, he sucks. Yeah, Nothing he, I think objectively pretty bad. Yeah, th- but this was a really sweet moment that I was like, okay, fine, this is great. And uh, again, you get one gold star in your ledger for yeah. this. It's a decent-sized gold star. Like, this is very, oh, very yeah. good. But it doesn't make up for all of those years of, Yeah, there's, you know. there's no way you can sit there carving little figurines for years while your you know, youngest daughter hunts and tries to save your guys' lives and... Like, oh, I showed up with a ship and some soldiers and named them after you, you know, named the ships after you. Yeah. You know what would have been better? Am I forgiven? What would have been better than uh, naming your boats after your daughters? Being there for them. Yeah, exactly. The yeah, yeah, totally. So while this huge battle is going on, Amran and Feyre are like, look, we got to we gotta put an end to this mm-hmm. while we can. Like, our forces aren't going to last forever. So with the help of the Weaver, who is like murdering guards left and right, and Nesta, who's distracting the king. They find the cauldron and we know they're supposed to use the book of the breathings to destroy the cauldron. The serial gave them instructions on how to use the book mm-hmm. to do this. But instead, when Feyre touches it, Amran like throws the book aside. And in the moment, you're like, did Amran just betray them? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was yeah. Like, oh, no, is the worst possible thing that could happen 
happening right now. Right. Like, no. But so the cauldron holds Feyre captive and kind of shoots her over the battlefield and shows her the confrontation between her friends and her sisters and the King of Highburn. Mm-hmm. Nesta is facing off this king fearlessly. But then the king reveals that he's holding their father hostage with like a knife to his throat saying, what would you give to save your father? And Nesta's like, I'd give anything. And he basically is like cool and slits his throat. Yeah. Like, like thanks for letting me know. Yeah. Doesn't matter anyway. Mm-hmm. It was, it was gnarly. And so their father dies and Cassian tries to intervene to kind of spare Nesta and, the king just brutalizes him. I mean, yeah. it's it's a horrific beatdown. But then it kind of turns Nesta into this. It's like she turns her humanity off. Yeah. But even more than that, she like turns her fairy self off and just, just lets goes full primal. Yeah. Like way. lets her like death powers take over. Like it says like her neck like twists in this way that is so like unearthly right. that it's disturbing. And she just, she starts, I mean, like, you know, at this point, the king had better be scared. But it's not Nesta that kills him. Yeah, right. It's Elaine. She comes out of nowhere with Azriel's sword, truth teller, and stabs it into his throat. And then Nesta and Elaine together twist this blade in and decapitate the king and just kill him. Yeah. Really it was hardcore. It was awesome. I was like, good for you guys. I was like, oh, finally. Yeah. But again, I loved seeing Elaine. Maybe not like Elaine doesn't really need to be disturbed with these kinds of experiences. Yeah, it's not going to help. a little too delicate maybe for right, that. Right. But like I at least liked the fact that Elaine wasn't this like wilting flower who's right. having to sit in a tent and be guarded while all of her friends are like on the battlefield possibly dying. Yeah. Like it was nice to see her in this moment have some power of her own. So... Feyre is seeing this small victory, but as this cauldron is sucking her back, she's seeing the battle still raging on and their forces are losing. So she gets back to the cauldron and she regains consciousness and Amran's there and she's like, how could you betray us? And she's like, look, I know you think that I betrayed you. I understand. But what I actually need you to do is like hold on to the cauldron right now. You need to keep this bond. The serial specifically told me this is how we have to do this. So I need you to take this spell and untether me to my human form. And when this happens, I'm not going to remember you. I'm going to be this unstoppable, destructive force. And I'm going to just eradicate this other army, essentially. And this is what we have to do. But it's going to be the end of my human life, essentially. So it's it's another like kind of really sorrowful goodbye. Varian shows up and is like, Amron, don't do this. Like, I, you know, all but love you. Like, come on. Like, we've got this great thing going. And she's just like, thank you for showing me humanity. Thank you for showing me this life. Like, it's really, really that I haven't, you know, had. Yeah. It's like a genuinely emotional goodbye. Oh, yeah. I was like a little bit devastated. And so she gives Feyre the spell to unleash her. And Feyre does it. And immediately, Amran just goes full monster mode pretty much and she destroys hybern's army the battle is now won oh my gosh it's over but now because it's never just over in a fantasy book there's always a second element and especially like the last hundred pages Uh uh-huh sarah j mass book (laughs) 
always are the craziest. <laughs> yes. I love it. You like have whiplash reading yeah. these books. You're like, what is going on? Um, but so the cauldron is now kind of like turning into a black hole pretty much because they have taken so much from the cauldron that it needs to be fed back power. Mm-hmm. Otherwise it will like suck the world into like it pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And so they have to remake it. And Reese tells Pharaoh while she's still tethered to this cauldron to use his power to remake the cauldron. And so she does very kind of unquestioning. I was shocked at how like yeah. how fast this happens that there wasn't like a, Hey, a lot of people are dying when they touch this cauldron. Maybe, but no. So yeah, she no just thought just, Immediately. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And so she she takes Reese's power and she just essentially like sucks him dry of power to stabilize the cauldron. Right. And so the cauldron is stabilized, but Reese dies in this process. And I mean, for especially for the Feyrand fans out mm-hmm. there, this is like that's, that's a hard one to take. This is a devastating moment. Yeah. Like we thought the cereal was bad. <laughs> we thought Amron dying was bad. Like this is catastrophic yeah. levels. Like if Reese is dead, how could there possibly be more books? What is even right. the point? Like, you know what I mean? Like, he is just so, so essential. So we kind of end up in this, you know, well, what do we do? And mm-hmm. it really revisits the ending of the first book. Yeah. where And and that's that's one aspect of it that I really liked. Is mm-hmm. Like, truly coming full circle with everything. Yeah. So... Like in the first book, when Pharaoh dies and the high lords gather together to give a piece of themselves to Pharaoh to bring her back to life, they do the same thing to Reese. Mm-hmm. They give them each a piece of their power, but standing in for the night court is the high lady of the night court, Pharaoh, yeah. which I think was really, really, really special yeah. that like Reese previously gave a piece of himself to her to save her life. Mm-hmm. And now she is doing that for him. And that is really meaningful. Right. I and, think. and to truly illustrate the fact that like, no, 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 it's not like, oh, he's, you know, the wife or whatever, mm-hmm. the, the queen or, you know, it's, she's truly equal on a level playing field and like something that that's not typical in their realm. And right. I, yeah. I really like the symbology of that too. Yeah. Like a lady could not do this. It takes right. a high lady, high lady. to be able yep. to complete. And if he had not, done this he would be dead if he had yes. not made Farah uh, the high lady there would be no way to bring him back yeah which i mean catastrophic really i mean the night yeah. court would be airless like it would just be a disaster and also like the most devastating possible end to the why would sarah j mass even do this to us so i don't want to think about it right um and luckily we don't have to think about it because <laughs> they bring him back and along with reese reese brings back amran yeah um, as well from the cauldron and brings Aaron back from death as well. Mm-hmm. So we get a bit of a happy ending. Yeah. The the building romance between Aaron and, and Varian is not for nothing. Right. She's and back too. So uh, this could potentially be a controversial opinion here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really like it in books when characters die. Oh my gosh. And they're done. Uh-huh. And... Like the goodbye with Amran and everything, mm-hmm. it was there. It was set up perfectly. She gave like that ultimate sacrifice, and then to kind of have her still come back is felt a little off. Yeah, I'm not unhappy that she's back. Obviously, I mean she's one of my favorite characters, but it felt okay giving that goodbye, and then for her to just come back after that. 
yeah felt a little weird yeah like her death was very emotional and there was a ton of closure in it like it was like we have come full circle in the story Mm -hmm. we have gone from this like monster entity to human like not literally human but like the humanity element like it really was a full circle and so i think if aaron hadn't come back i would i don't know anything past this book but in this book i would have felt like there was good closure there and that even more than the serial like i feel like aaron had more of an end, a real honorable end than most characters. So yeah, I I agree. I I think that like without Reese, this book series would be catastrophically bad. Reese would have not been able to come back. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard to come back from. Right. But I agree with you that I think that if Amron had not come back, that it still would have felt complete. Yeah. As much as I love Amron. Like, I mean, I love Amron, but I think that it was a good send off. Yeah, and I also think that sometimes on the in these series when it's so easy to bring characters back from the dead, it almost gets where like death doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It's like, you know, watching the vampire diaries and it's like <laughs> how many times have they died? Like just, Bonnie's yeah. a witch, she's going to bring uh, them back or like was it like a supernatural. It's like, okay, well how many times can you bring back right. Sam and Dean? Yeah. Right. And then they die and you're like, yeah, I really did. I feel like, nothing. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, no, I I I I completely understand where you're coming from with that. And I I am happy that Amron is still there, yes. but I do think that it would have been just as, unless Sarah J. Mass has like real plans for her character yeah. that I don't know about. And and if that is the, maybe she needs to be there in the future books to guide Nesta. But yes, I, I understand a hundred percent where you're coming from. And so after this, it just kind of really ties yeah. everything up still into a pretty a good ending. bow. Yeah. yeah. Lucian comes back from Vasa. He's Okay. Miriam and Draken agree to hide the cauldron on their island, which, I mean, nobody's ever going to find it. Yeah, clearly. (laughs) It's impossible to find. So (laughs) there's like no more secure place in the world than Miriam and Draken's island. Yes. And then uh, they build a new treaty between the humans and the Fae. And then they like go back to Valaris to Mm -hmm. live happily ever after. I mean, it really felt like it was tied up into a really nice bow. Yeah. Aside from, I would say, maybe Nesta. Nesta is the one that took... Took it the worst, just the whole being in the thick of things. And I think especially seeing her dad die right in front of her face, you know, when especially given the opportunity maybe to save him. Right. And I think that did a whole lot of damage to Nesta. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure that that is kind of that. I feel like so many times these books really create a lead into the next book. And I think that because technically the next book is Nesta's book, mm-hmm. that tying up like the Feyre of it all and all of that kind of tying that into a nice little bow but then giving Nesta that movement forward yeah Yeah. I think that that creates a much more natural movement to her being our next narrator obviously we still have the novella in between them but the next big major book is Nesta's book so that's going to be a huge transition I feel like for me at least it's going to be yeah it's a takes a while to get used to but yeah. You will. We'll get there. Yeah. It's one step at a time. So is there anything that I forgot going through the plot? I feel like if we went line by line, it would just be disastrous. But I feel like I tried to hit the big major points. Yeah. Um, so I would say uh, maybe a, a big one that I uh, noticed is the moment in the very final battle where the cauldron kind of does the Death Star thing and mm-hmm. like wipes out most of the Illyrian units. Yeah. And Nesta goes, hey, Cassian over here. I feel like that's a major, major moment. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm making it out bigger than it actually is, but I feel like that 
you know, without that, without Nesta showing that one semblance of like caring about somebody mm-hmm. other than herself. Yeah. Saved like most people's favorite characters. I mean, one of my favorite characters, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I felt that was a really big moment in the heat of that battle. Yeah. And I'm definitely interested in seeing how Cassian and Nesta's relationship goes forward from here. It's such a like aggressive grumpy versus sunshine kind of romance, like to such an extreme where I'm just like, I just, Nesta is a really difficult one for me. Like (laughs) I have a really hard time with her because she's just, she gives me nothing. Yeah. Every every time you're like, oh, maybe. And then no, no, like I am so not emotionally connected to her. And I am more invested in like a weaver backstory than i am in nesta yeah Yeah. oh my god what i would not do for a novella of like the weaver and the surreal and maybe the bone carver like having just like a gossip session like that would be incredible (laughs) i also too like you know in talking about novellas i feel like i would love a novella that is when the high lords are trapped under the mountain Mm. more vivian like running these courts outside of this like i want to know that story i want to know the story of the rebellion i like these women running these courts and being the leaders that they need to be in these moments like a i love these characters period but like i i want that i want them to be my protagonist and i want to know that whole story like what a great story so yeah obviously i I would i would love to like you said at some point like Finish the main story Mm -hmm. and then like go sprinkle in some novellas, like different timelines and like, you know, everything like that. I would love to get some of that. Yeah. And again, I think that is 100 percent credit to Sarah J. Mass's world building abilities. Like there are not many fantasy books where you are so deep in the sauce that you can Mm -hmm. be like, there is a whole nother story here that has not even been sussed out. Like. I, I can probably, I think if I had 10 minutes, I could sit here and come up with five novellas that oh, I would oh, love yeah. to see. And I, I think that's that's a, a testament to like her uh, her writing just in general, because I, I, I can't possibly remember who said it, but someone mentioned that like a good book, you're always thinking about what's going on, mm-hmm. but an even better book, you're like, what's going on off the pages? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. I feel that 100%. Like, oh my gosh, can I just have a novella of Helion? Just like being like... Like kind of like a playboy a little yes. bit. Yes. Yeah. I just... I mean, because his character too is so interesting. The fact that he just kind of is like, yeah, I, I go both ways and I go with everybody like, and like <laughs> maybe everybody at once. And like, I mean, there's... There's a lot to unpack there. Right. And like if we're <laughs> if we're all loving some chapter 55 in book two, then we're going to love a Helion yeah. novella. <laughs> so... Yeah, so I think at this point, I think it would be really fun for us to kind of dive into these courts because it's it's both of our favorite moment in this entire book is the yes. courts. So I think we should dive into these a little bit and maybe we kind of rank them a little bit and yeah. maybe see which ones are our favorites, which ones are kind of maybe, ob- I mean, the least favorites are pretty obvious, but yes. maybe let's rank them a little bit, some power rankings. I think let's start out with the night court because I... I think it's the one that we know the best. I mean, we know, I mean, obviously all of our protagonists come from the night court. So we have a really good understanding of it. Valaris is such an incredible city. I mean, it is literally a fair utopia. Mm -hmm. I've said before, it gives me Iceland vibes. It's just such a like magical place. Yeah. But 
in the night court, you also have this really awful evil entity of the hewn city and the diabolical court of nightmares. And so many times because we're focused on our protagonists, we're kind of sheltered from that Mm -hmm. court of nightmares. And, you know, we're only one uprising away from Kier becoming the the king of the night court. You can't kind of ignore that, like, you know, all those horrible things are still going on down there. Right, exactly. Actively. And I mean, like, and more talks about her backstory and like the horrible things that her father did to her. But like, how many parents are still in the court mm-hmm. of nightmares doing that to their children today? Yeah. Like, Reese, in many ways, I understand that their whole priority is protecting Valaris at all costs, but. At what cost is right, too ex- much? Exactly. Like, you are still the most powerful High Lord in, like, the history of High yeah. Lords. If you wanted to crack down on all of these, like, horrible things that they're doing mm-hmm. and eradicate them or their behaviors, like, you could. Oh, yeah. And I understand the yin and yang yeah. of it all, but... Yeah, I mean, truly, like, one of my worst uh, habits when I'm reading these types of books is I'm, like, I come across a character that's, like, given friction, I'm like... Just kill them. Figure, <laughs> just figure, figure it out. Just like get rid of them and like work around it. Right. And I mean, I have to draw myself back and be like, no, like that can't always happen. There's got to be some sort of better plot devices. Right. But I mean, the human city, that's one that I'm like, just do something. So, I mean, the night court is incredible, obviously. Like Volaris is amazing. Right. But like, I, I feel like because our protagonists come from there, it's so easy to kind of put blinders on about these really, really dark elements of the night court and the problems that are really rampant there. And sometimes when these other high Lords criticize the night court, yes, it's it's coming from the outside and they don't have a full understanding, but like, it's not unfounded. It's not misplaced. Yeah. Yeah. There's some real stuff that they're basing this off of, but yeah. So under, uh, I'm kind of going in geographical order. Right. So after the night court, you have the day court. I think the day court is one of the courts that we know the least about at this point. Um, Maybe we learn more about it in the future. I don't know. I hope we do because I love Helion. Yes. I mean, he is a blast. I get kind of Egyptian vibes maybe. Do you get? Yeah. I mean, especially from just the name itself. Yeah. Helion. I'm like, oh, well, that kind of. Helios. Like yeah. that. Yeah. Like that's in that realm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I, I would love to get to know more about the day court, but I don't feel like I know a huge amount about them other than that they're one of the courts that rebelled against Aramantha. Mm-hmm. And that Helios, he has such a fun personality. Yeah. And like almost kind of like a swagger to him too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He's got that, that, uh, that BDE. Yeah. Um, but yes. <laughs> so after the day court, we have the dawn court, which thankfully we were able to actually visit this yes. time. And for me, the dawn court is automatic top tier court for me, because as I said, I love their powers, the healing, the inventions, and it's just... It's so exciting to me, but uh, there's like a cerebral nurturing, like future looking yeah. kind of ideal to it that that really speaks to me. But on top of that, I thought it was really cool that they have these winged fighters called peregrines. They're they're kind of like the Illyrians, but they're they're kind of more like bird like. Yeah. And more like feathered wings. right? Yeah. yeah. And also, again, this is uh, so this is one of the courts where the High Lord is gay. And I also think that the Dawn Court, we get an entire moment in this book where Sarah J. Mass makes a really, really pointed effort to show that the Dawn Court is inclusive of immigrants. Yeah. So this inventor comes in and she has invented an antidote to Fabane. 
and this is kind of the end of the Fabian problem mm-hmm. in this book is that Hybern can no longer use this as a tool because she's created this this antidote. And some of the not so great high lords are like, well, how can we trust you to take this Fabane because you're an immigrant from another country, basically? Right. Like you aren't Prithian. Yeah, you're not part of our little clique. Yeah. And she's kind of like, well, first of all, how dare you? Second of all, like I was born here. And even if I wasn't, who cares? How dare you make these kinds of assumptions? And her high lord completely backs her up. Yeah. And it was really, really great to see. This moment in this book where I was like, oh, again, another backstory that we could explore. Yep. That would be so cool. <laughs> but I just, I really, and this is also this this tinkerer, if you will, is the person who invented Lucian's eye. Yeah. And she has a golden hand that kind of matches Lucian's eye. So what's going on there? I mean, it's such a cool moment. I just, I love her so much. (laughs) I want to know more. It was, that was for me just like such a home run in this book. Yeah. So yeah, I'm a, I'm obviously a Don Court stan. So under the Don Court, we have the beginning of the seasonal court. So we have the winter court. I think the the winter court is a really cool court because when Feyre and Lucian are fleeing and they're running through the winter court, it is like deadly, freezing, frigid, mm-hmm. like malicious cold that is going to kill them. And it's like brutal and unforgiving, just hostile environment. But then when we meet the high lord of the winter court and when we meet his army, we see this like egalitarianness we see these like charming like winter wonderland kind of things like evergreens and velvet antlered reindeer (laughs) who lead sleighs there are foxes with embroidered vests that carry messages like what's what's cooler than that this freaking adorable (laughs) and then of course on top of that we have vivian who comes from the night court right and we again know that they are one of the courts that has been consistently rebelling against Mm -hmm. hybern and its forces so I mean, we, it's just, I like the juxtaposition of the night court, I think, yeah. because of this hostile environment, but yet they are so yeah, beautiful. what they're living in, they can still be a good society. Yeah. It's like holiday cheer. Yeah. I think that's such a cool concept. So I really love the winter court too, um, which is funny because I am like such not a winter person oh, that I'm yeah. like, <laughs> I, the minute I was like winter court, I was like, no. But then, I mean, she said foxes and embroidered vests and I was done for. Yeah. So then we have the fall court, which universally is pretty awful. The people in the fall court are known to be ruthless, mm-hmm. cutthroat, awful, though. I wonder how much like Baron and the legacy of his lineage and the fathers who came before him, who are high Lord, how much influence that they have over that and how maybe if like they got a good guy on the throne, maybe it yeah, could get better. Know, yeah. I don't know, but it's really rough in, yeah. in the fall court. But fire powers are super cool. Always objectively cool. I freaking love fire powers. <laughs> like I'm always like, oh, that's really awesome. Yeah. So they do have that going for them. And then we've already talked about the summer court quite a bit, but I love the summer court. It gives me House Valerian of House of the Dragon vibes mm-hmm. very much, but like a little bit less sea logged. Maybe a little bit yeah. where it's just a little bit prettier. It, you know, I, as I said, it's like Croatia kind of thing for me where I'm like, just sit on the Adriatic Sea, mm. sip some wine, feel the sea breeze. Imagine all the history that's gone on here. Like it's such a stunning 
environment. And I really, really like the people that we've met in the, oh, in the yeah. summer. Oh, yeah. So I'm very attached to them and I can't help but love them very much. And they also were one of the ones who rebelled against Aramantha. And very, very clearly, as we learned in the second book, uh, Tarkin has this really significant egalitarian ideal of yeah. the fairy world. Yeah, I, mean, I remember when we uh, kind of first went there, that's kind of how Reese and Tarkin started their bond. It was like they both want to blur the lines between high fae and just regular fae, you know? Mm-hmm. And and I really, you know, appreciate that, you know, kind of humanitarian, well, fagitarian uh, <laughs> aspect of it, you know? Yes. I, I think that that goes a long way in, like, moving you up my ranks. 100%. Yeah. I, I really, I enjoy... I just everything I there's not been a single thing where I have not been like no. love. Yeah, the vibes are good. The vibes are amazing in yeah. the summer court. Um, and then last mm-hmm. and possibly least, we have the spring court, which I think for me, the best way to describe it is pretty on the outside, basic and disappointing on the inside. Yeah. Uh, the the only like real good takeaway I had from uh, the spring court, which like she kind of got left out a little bit was Alice. Oh, but, yes. But still, but still, she was from Summer Court. Yes. Originally. And so. she did in this book flee from mm-hmm. the Spring Court when like the going started getting gnarly. She was like, I'm getting out of here and ran to the Summer Court. And we never found out if she was never okay really or not. found anything out. Do we find out in later books if she's okay or not? Do we ever see Alice again? As far as I know, we do not. Oh, my gosh. This is a loose now, end. Now, may- maybe it just like I skimmed over it somehow, like. I missed it a little bit, mm-hmm. but as far as I know, I don't remember uh, seeing it. And and I wouldn't remember because I wanted to yeah. find out more. Like, is she okay? Yeah. I'm, I hope so. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Because, yeah, Favorite was, like, looking for her in the siege. But, I mean, mm. we didn't see her, which is good, but you didn't see everybody. Right. That doesn't, yeah. <laughs> this doesn't mean doesn't she's... Doesn't always mean it's going to be yeah, good. She could have been in, like, the <laughs> turret over, like, for yeah. all we know. Oh, my gosh. So now I'm stressed. Um but also the spring court in my mind is like the most beautiful English countryside manor yeah. with like a stunning rose garden and just it is it is so beautiful in my mind. But yet every single time I give the spring court a single benefit of the doubt, I am disappointed. Yeah. And there's also kind of the juxtaposition between the spring and the winter court mm-hmm. right? where you've got the winter court horrible you know on the outside looking in mm-hmm. horrible place to live but then the people are so nice and egalitarian especially their rulers and then spring court right mm-hmm. looks like such a great place to live and then all of a sudden you're like oh wait no the ruler is a big baby and <laughs> you know can't really ever take responsibility for his own actions mm-hmm. so i i do like that juxtaposition within even the courts themselves yeah i did love at the very beginning of this book when she's you know she's in the spring court and tamlin keeps being like we're going to try we're all trying and she's like rolling her eyes being like is that your like buzzword now like yeah i don't see any actions that back up this quote-unquote try yeah there's there's none yeah and also like the rituals of the spring court suck yeah like the spring right weird garbage yeah a little weird Meanwhile, like, can you imagine how wonderful the winter court's rituals probably are? Uh, like, if they're that festive on the everyday, how festive are they? Yeah, you want to talk about another novella. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there's one. <laughs> Literally, I would I would die for Christmas at the winter court. Like, Oh, yeah. 
oh my, whatever the fairy version, winter solstice at the winter court. There you go. Please and thank you. Wrap it up in a bow. I want this so badly. And yeah, I mean, we've seen like Starfall as a, as a cultural touchstone. Right. We see Starfall in the winter court. I would be fascinated to see what summer solstice is like mm-hmm. in the summer court. All of these different, like what kind of dawn and day festival? I mean, I just imagine dawn court festivities just being full on debauchery. Yeah, like, as, they, as they would be. <laughs> like a Bacchus level yeah. kind of situation. But like just a cultural elements of it I think are so interesting to explore and we get tastes of them in the places where we spent a lot of time mm-hmm. but boy I would love to see even yeah, more of those all out I want to yes. know everything take me on vacation to one of these <laughs> cool courts and let's go have like a whatever holiday I'm down yes so all right so what is your favorite court so my favorite court is the winter court really yes mm-hmm. um, because I am a little partial towards winter mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't say I love it but it's up there with one of my favorite seasons and especially being down here in Mississippi for a while I'm from back north uh-huh. not having a true winter I didn't realize how much I missed it so it's got that you know seasonal weather aspect to it mm-hmm. and then I just think uh, you know how Vivian and Callias they're so egalitarian and it almost seems like they're like you know, there's a little bit of humanity in them. You know, mm-hmm. they're real towards each other, you know, like the little side eye thing that Vivian will do and like keep uh, Callias in check. And yeah, I, I really like that. So yeah, for and, sure. And I, and I think that permeates down through the rest of the society too. Totally. hundred percent. I think that so much of these courts are represented in their high lords. Oh yeah. yeah. For sure. And so I think, yeah, when you see a high lord, you know a whole lot about their culture, because I think also we don't have enough time to go through the courts, so it makes sense. Right, so I, I for do her, kind of like yeah. use them as like a, a sort of a, a looking glass into yes. what the rest of the society might look like for sure. Yeah, and your favorite? Oh gosh, I don't know. I <laughs> so my favorite is either the dawn court or the summer court. For me, they're like very close together. Yeah. Maybe the summer court just because I think I know more about it, but I feel like if I had as much time in the dawn court as I have had in the summer court, Mm -hmm. it would be far and away my favorite. So I think it's just more that I don't quite know a ton about it yet, but the vibes are good. The vibes speak to me very much. And, and also like, I'm again, if I knew as much about the day court as I know about the summer court, Mm -hmm. I mean, for all I know, it could be them. Yeah, that would, I mean, that sounds like a a rip roaring good time kind of place. So yeah, it's really hard. It's like a bit of a Sophie's choice for me where yeah. I'm like, I just don't know. Maybe Dawn Court. If I, you know, if I had to say, I'd probably say Dawn Court. But Summer would be a very close yeah. second for me. What is your second? Ooh. I mean, I do have to give it to the Night Court. I yeah. Think. I, I, you know, protagonists does skew it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I, I do appreciate how, you know, even as horrible as the Hewn City is that, you know, Reese does still really keep them in in check yeah and then there is still the downside of like well what you know what are we doing you know can we actually see things happening Mm -hmm. that are improving those people's lives right um but i think for all of the bad that the night court has uh, i think it's far outweighed by the good and valeris is like one of my favorite cities yes to just explore and be mentally in. <laughs> I, li- I literally want to go on vacation to Valaris. Yeah, like so great. I want to book my plane ticket and I want to go tomorrow. Like yeah. what an incredible place. But yeah, I think, yeah, 
I don't know. I have a hard time even coming up with a top. This is this oh, is yeah, why I love these kinds of worlds is because it's just like I think the fun part is that you don't have to pick your favorite, even though I'm actively making us pick our favorites. Yeah. Like as a reader, you don't have to do this to yourself. You can just enjoy it. Yeah. But who is your what is your least favorite court? So easy answer here. I feel like I have to go with spring court. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can just only imagine, I mean, maybe there's going to be some sort of magic there that mm-hmm. will help, but my allergies would be, <laughs> <laughs> my allergies would be insane mm-hmm. in the Supreme Court. And uh, to have to deal with allergies and then a moody ruler on top of that. Yes. Uh, and especially with the, the whole tithe thing. Oh, yeah. Because I don't, do we know that? The rest of the courts do that? I don't think. Uh, I know that the night court doesn't because remember they were like, what is a tithe? What are you talking about? Yeah. So, you know, just like trying to maybe picture myself living there Mm -hmm. would not want to do that at all. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, though, we have not seen it as much. I think for me, the autumn court is the worst solely because I know that Lucian went out of his way to flee to the spring court. Right. And then the spring court is not as yeah. bad as the autumn court. That's, yeah, that's true. And yeah. so in my mind, I'm like Tamlin for as absolutely infuriating and difficult as he is. He is quote unquote trying. He did kind of come around a little bit on, you know, this kind of slightly altruistic assistance to Farah yeah. in her time of need. You know, he is very self-serving and entitled and just the worst kind of dude. But I feel like the fall court is like evil for sport. Yeah, rotten from the inside out. Yeah, like it it is your value is based on how horrible you can Mm -hmm. truly be. And like maybe Eris is not as bad as people think he is. But the fact that even if he isn't that bad, that he has to work so hard to make people think that he's horrible speaks to that court. And also because it's more of an internal thing for him, like Reese is being evil to protect his court from the rest of the world to put on a strong face. Eris is doing this within his own family to save face, basically. Right. And to protect himself from what, as Lucian said, like they prey on the weak. Yeah. But I think it's it's obvious that the spring court and the fall court are the worst courts. But there's one thing that's worse than the spring courts and the fall court. And it's the mortal lands. Oh, yeah. God, they suck. Wouldn't be caught dead there. (laughs) (laughs) You couldn't even pay me. (laughs) Well, thank you, Ethan, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I've had so much fun talking about this book with you. I am so happy that you enjoyed it as much as I did and that we got to kind of share this fun world building moment. But yeah, so I guess until next time, happy reading. This episode of Mass Holes was produced and hosted by Caroline Barbie and co-hosted by Ethan Black. Music by Hartle Road. Mass Holes is part of the Friendly City Books Podcasting Network. Hey there, it's Caroline. Thanks for listening. Support Friendly City Books and other independent bookstores like us by shopping online at bookshop.org and libro.fm. Follow us on social media at Friendly City Books, and don't forget to like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Happy reading!